often and I just yearn for architects and planners to come out en masse and say, we can do better than this. Look at these images. This is how we should be doing it. I, I want the professions to behave nobly about this and they, at the moment, they're not really. Welcome to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast. You're on City Road. I'm Fenella Kernabone. I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney, and it's great to have your company. Today, Kurt Iverson is talking with Elizabeth Farrelly about her book, Killing Sydney, The Fight for the City Soul. In this book, Elizabeth Farrelly outlines a blueprint for the future of Sydney in a radically changing world. Elizabeth will be familiar to many Sydney siders from her regular column in the Sydney Morning Herald on all things urban. She brings a unique perspective to the question of Sydney's future as an architectural writer and former city councillor with a PhD from the University of Sydney, no less. And now over to Kurt, who is speaking with Elizabeth via Zoom. And he starts by asking her why she decided to write a book all about Sydney. Yes, quite right. Why a book? I mean, who writes books? You have to be crazy to write a book. It's dumb. You can't make any money. You can't change anything. It's infuriating. It takes an enormous amount of work. And what's the point? But, you know, if you're a writer, it's not like writing's fun. But it's nice, as they say, um, when you finish. <laughs> um, so it's kind of cold shower syndrome, maybe a bit. But look, I mean, I didn't I didn't set out to write that book. I wrote a series of, it started because I wrote a series of articles in the Herald. Um, I've been writing a column for the Sydney Morning Herald for ever. And I wrote a series in 2015 or something, 16, which was when they were just starting to do Wisconnects and knock down all those fig trees on Anzac Parade and a whole lot of other things. And and also, I was teaching at the time and I was preparing a lecture because I thought, these students don't actually know what's going on in Sydney. So I thought, I'm just going to talk about what's happening in Sydney. And so I lived in Redfern at the time and I came out my front door one morning. I remember this because I used to love that front door because it was right on Charmer Street, which is like the worst street in Redfern. And but down the end of it was Centre Point Tower. And I used to think, this is so cool. Here I am in the middle of this wonderful, crazy city. But I remember looking at that tower one morning and thinking, there is, I don't know why, particularly then, but there is this enormous amount of development planned. I'd realised that it wasn't just, you know, and then there was Barangaroo was happening and the casino was talked about and it was Harold Park and there was, uh, what's the name, Central Park had just happened and there were a whole lot of other things like talks about building over the back of Central Railway Station and a number of other things. And then I looked at the map and realised that that, and then, and that whole thing of rezoning all the public housing in New South Wales had also just happened, so that that was all up for grabs. And the metro was still talked about, and the light rail was happening. And then the I realised that the whole of South Sydney, it wasn't just Green Square, but the whole of just about everything between my house and the airport was zoned for whatever you like you know, which at that stage, highest and best use was, was residential. And so the presumption was towers, much of which has since happened. So I, which was billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of stuff. And I thought, this is actually going to change everything in a way that hasn't happened in Sydney, probably ever, like to a degree that hasn't happened ever, despite development booms, which are well documented. So 
I wrote this series of articles saying this is huge, it's going to be catastrophic, and I did a lecture on the same topic, and I, and um, actually a publisher, the publisher who was at Picador at the time, rang me up and said, I want a book, um, I want a book that's both part love song and part Jeremiah. Uh, and I had to look up Jeremiah because I'm not really an Old Testament person, but uh, <laughs> Jeremiah was a an angry prophet, um, and I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's like you say, I think it does feel like one of the real advantages of being able to pull together the book is, as you say, maybe in a column you can pick apart something in West Connects or something in Green Square, but actually there's something so powerful about putting all of those things together and thinking about the connections across them and what's going on when you look at them as a whole across the length of a book that is really powerful. But you sort of mentioned there in passing there's part love story too. And I guess, that yeah, there is a real sense of your love for this city, uh, particularly at the start of the book, but all the way through clearly animating it. And I know you say a bit about that love and where it comes from in the book, but it'd be nice to just ask you now as well, like about how you have come to like this city in the way that you do. Yes, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, my, I, I, you know, I grew up in Auckland, so leafy suburbia was kind of home, but... And then I lived in London, really, before coming to Sydney. I'd been here briefly for a week or something and did actually think this place is amazing. And I, as I say in the book, I, I remember the first breath of Sydney air, you know, that kind of mix of of, of salt and something sque- sweet like sort of rotten figs or something and diesel and cigarette smoke, you know, this kind of, so this mix of the kind of the fecund and the fetid and something lovely and something corrupt just it I just found it enchanting and I still do and the even the kind of infuriating filth (laughs) moral filth sometimes of Sydney and I don't mean that in a sexual way but just this kind of this kind of innate sense that oh well whatever you like just do whatever you like uh which still infuriates me about Sydney but also it is part of the the thing that I love and that kind of crazy messed up damaged background of Sydney that I find enchanting. It's probably the writer in me that loves that, you know, because the, the I do have an inner moralist or two that gets really cross with it. But Sydney is just, the other cities that I love most are probably London and Barcelona. And I think Sydney has some of each. It really is London built without any money or scholarship or knowledge or, or kind of culture. You know, it's like strip out, strip out all of the all of the things that make London distinguished and then and then let people do that. So I and and I, and that story enchants me too of how you send a, a boatload of starving ignorant largely convicts here, exiling them to the other end of the world, which must have actually felt like death if you come from the east end of London with no knowledge and no sense even of how to grow food, let alone how to make a culture or a civilization, and just dump them. I mean, it must have just felt like living death. And yet, what do they do? They The first thing they do is build right on the edge of the continent, like they're not even really here, um, this funny kind of crabbed version of exactly the culture that had rejected them. And I, I think that's so perverse and so sweet and so touching and so completely inappropriate to this place and this climate and this everything that you know everything about Sydney charms me in that way because it is perverse and messed up and yet somehow beautiful and and more beautiful in lots of ways than London like the way this sort of voluptuous nature of 
nature, like flora and fauna of Sydney, but also its voluptuous topography, suit this ridiculous kind of messed up narrow laneways and um, terrace houses that should never, that have got no reason, like oh, everything you're taught in architecture school says this is completely inappropriate for this kind of climate. And yet somehow it works and it's beautiful. And those inner, inner bits, those old ignorant bits, when I say ignorant, I mean, I mean built out of ignorance from kind of pattern books at best, are the most charming and now the most sought after and the most expensive. And that's charming too. So, so yes, yeah, so the sort of the Surrey Hills and the Glebe and the, those inner parts of Redfern, I really love, even though I can no longer afford to live there. <laughs> so yes, it's it's just this kind of hopeless enchantment that I think Sydney exerts for reasons that I can't really, I don't think, explain. But it is quite mixed. It's not just because it's beautiful. It's because it's beautiful and somehow infuriating at the same time yeah and look i think the the structure of the book for folks who are listening that haven't read it really does have a crack at sort of (laughs) thinking about those dynamics that you've just talked about and sort of you know identifying them and and breaking them up into sort of thematic treatments and so there's these sort of couplets across the book solid and void fast and slow public and private nature and culture, then and now, inside and out, primate and angel. And what's so nice, I think, about the way that they're all treated in the book is that the end is so important, in a, you know, and it comes through in the way you've just described the city uh, just now as well, that sense that um, the balance, I guess, between those forces and how the city holds a balance between those forces is so important. And I guess, yeah, there's a sense in which Part of what seems to be killing Sydney in the book is that those things are coming out of balance now. That uh, you know, fast, prioritised over slow, sprawl, whether at horizontal or vertical, sort of prioritised over density, and so on. And so, look, we we don't have time as much as I would like to to go through all of those, but maybe in my one gesture to the moment that we're in right now of lockdown and being in a pandemic is just to pick maybe a couple um, and to think particularly about you know, how, what, you know, what you're saying with them, but also maybe how they do speak to the current moment. And if I'm looking at that list, I think the, the drive for increasing speeds and speed of movement across the city is certainly something that has, you know, transformed it at various moments in its history, including recently mm-hmm. with West Connects and others. But mm-hmm. um, Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, it's, I've never quite been persuaded by the slow movement because I think, oh, da-dee-da, cut to the chase. You know, I'm, I'm an impatient person <laughs> and I like things to happen and I like change, but I like it because I like change and, and things happening because they make things interesting and more complicated. And one of the curious effects of our overwhelming obsession with not just speed but efficient movement, in other words, unimpeded movement, uh, is that it makes everything more boring. It doesn't make things more interesting. I mean, I'm. I think one of the things I'm always looking for is to to make life more interesting. I'm easily bored, and so I like things that make everything more fun. And what motorways? Motorways were invented, you know, essentially. Um, that's Corbusian theory of of separating fast movement from slow. And it's still for reasons that I will never understand. A hundred years later, more than in that. It's still the predominant traffic engineer's 
mode of thought. So that's what they do. I mean, they're still building that. You know, have you seen what they're doing in Roselle? And have you seen what they've done in St. Peter's? It is just an absolute nightmare. It's not even like there's much traffic on these wretched things. It's just this taking what was a sort of funny little crabbed grid of laneways and streets and turning them into this vast swathe of crisscrossing, viaducted, you know, asphalted nothingness. And spatially, that's just blindingly dull. And I think it's bad enough doing it in a kind of tabula rasa context where you've got sort of nothing much and you just want to get from A to B really quickly. But where you have an existing fabric that is beautiful and loved and old, which we don't have much of in this country, you know, to destroy that, and, and especially when it's full of people as, the, you know, that end of King Street Newtown always was, full of funny little shops and people crowding onto footpaths and on Sundays there'd be, you know, all of the, not just the bars but also the bookshops and everything else would sort of spill out onto the street with jazz and people drinking beer or coffee or whatever. That To take a culture like that and erase it for asphalt and speed is as close as I can think of to actual urban evil. It's I think it is. I think it's really wrong. It is an absolute destruction of sort of the life force of cities. And that is not something that I think should be forgiven. It's not, it's, and it's, it's not even really people, you know, it was, uh, it was refused, people, politicians refused to oppose West Connects, even um, on the Labour side of politics, they refused to because they thought it was all about getting people from the outer suburbs into the centre of Sydney, you know, God only knows why but of course it's not about that it was always you know it cost 26 dollars a trip to come in from penrith to the city on those roads and if you drive along the Parramatta road now there are about three places where suddenly there are four lanes and three of them are all taking you into a, a pay tunnel and if you actually want to go on the free road which by the way you've already paid for as taxes you actually have to be very careful and, and think sort of 150 meters in advance otherwise you get channeled into rich people's pockets. And I just think that is really wrong. It's wrong to to restrict roads, the road usage for rich people. It's, it's, it's just, it's wrong at every level. It's wrong on the climate change level. It's wrong to make driving easier because what we need is to make it harder. It's just wrong. And, and it also destroys neighbourhoods. So I really find that, sorry, it does make me angry. No, <laughs> no, no. Right, well, I, it makes yep, me cross. I, and it should I not be allowed. That. It's um, so old-fashioned, so last century. So let's yeah. just drive ourselves over the climate change cliff, you know. Yeah. And so, look, that's possibly a good moment in our conversation to think about what's driving these things. And driving is probably an unfortunate choice of word right there, <laughs> but we'll stick with it. But one of the foes that appears across all of those different chapters in the book is neoliberalism. It kind of reappears as a, as a sort of nemesis throughout the book. And it's embodied not only by, I guess, the pursuit of profit by private developers, but perhaps even more especially by the reorientation of government towards the facilitation of those profits and the monetization of public interests and, and public assets. So say a little more about how that diagnosis kind of has emerged for you over the years and, you know, whether, yeah, if you want to elaborate on, on neoliberalism and what you mean by it how it works. <laughs> Look, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it did emerge as a theme of the book and it wasn't really in my mind when the book began particularly. I mean, I 
have always resented certain aspects of, I suppose, of neoliberalism since I was, I was in, I lived in London during the Thatcher years. But even then, I wasn't all that opposed to it. I found it interesting, but I could see the point then of, you know, her point of, you know, making the whole pie bigger so everyone's share would increase even if the differences also increased. So that was sort of the thesis. But when, when you look at how it has panned out on the ground and the, and the way in which our governments have taken that on board as the only possible way of thinking, it's, it's just obvious that it's been profoundly destructive. And I think it's destroyed our education system as well as our cities. So I think it's been responsible for the undermining of the of, of all of that tension really between public and private. So there is no, and it's basically because of that Thatcher precept, uh, there's no such thing as society, which I think is patently wrong. And yet for some reason it was swallowed and it was swallowed because it appealed to, it made it made greed good. It, um, and that was what Adam Smith tried to do, you know, a hundred and something years earlier. And I don't really have an objection to capitalism, but I think it's essential that capitalism is is sort of softened and mitigated by more civilised rules. And to some extent, we do that. But So I don't really have an objection to developers per se, because developers do what developers do, which is try and make money. What I have an objection to is governments that uh, redefine their role from what I think is the proper one of the only proper role, really, of defending the public interest at every decision to defending the private interest. And and that's because they've, in taking Thatcherism on board, they've forgotten that there is such a thing as the public, in fact, and have no respect for anything that is not profit or not. I mean, to some extent, they'll take on board other quantifiable units like bums on seats. So so museums are valued in terms of visitor numbers. So popularity counts and votes count, of course, if you're a politician, but only those countable things really matter. And what and what that does is negate everything important about cities, which is their publicness, their shared nature as a collective artifact, as a collective artwork really. And that that's the most beautiful thing about cities. And because beauty and lovedness can't be quantified, for neoliberal mindsets, it doesn't exist. And I think that's so wrong. And the fact, the, the, the worst thing about it, in a way, is that this, this is what people call conservative politics, but there's nothing conservative about that. They're not conserving anything, every public asset, be it built or just, or institutions, you know, buildings, the fine sandstone buildings, um, and you, virtually everything has been sold off and privatised and monetised, and that's that's not conservatism. That's the actual opposite of conservatism. I think I would be a conservative if, <laughs> with the exception of women's rights, probably, or or human rights generally. But but if we were actually talking about conserving things, I'd be much happier with so-called conservative politics. But what they're doing is actually just taking the axe to everything, and I find that unforgivable. Hello, Fenella Kernerbone again. If you're enjoying this discussion, make sure you head over to the City Road podcast website to listen to the other six interviews in this series. All the details are on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. 
We would love to hear from you too. So tweet us at City Road Pod. And now back to the conversation. And look, so another of the foes, I guess, in the book and something that I guess is in some ways, I think appearing as something that's kind of contributing to the killing of the city or maybe has been there right from the start in, in some ways is sprawl um, and the tension between sort of sprawl and density. But I think one of the things that's really important that, uh, that you sort of make clear in the book here is that the battle for Sydney soul isn't just a battle for density per se, um, but that a battle for sort of good density that has those attributes that you've talked about. Um, and you do sort of argue that density in itself isn't necessarily good. And in fact, that in some ways, that idea in recent years has been kind of captured by developers and their supporters in government who will talk up its environmental credentials, talk up its affordability credentials, but then deliver, you know... Crap. Crap. Um, <laughs> and I guess, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that I know that sort of, you know, I do want to explore it a little bit more in a moment, but that sort of, I guess, debate about densification has been, you know, a long debate in the city and a debate that you've been, you know, involved in. And I guess I'm just interested to uh, ask you about how that, process of capture almost has happened do you think you know because um i think it'll resonate with lots of (laughs) readers and lots of observers of the city Mm. it's it's uh, it's been uh, i think it's been very clever um on the part of the development lobby to to see that they could use the arguments for density in their own best interests and do that i mean it's a bit similar to the way modernism was kind of captured by corporate interests and so and the same with the density push which should and and can be at its best be seen as as ecologically beneficial and also culturally beneficial i mean when i was again living in london i lived in tiny little places i didn't even know you could live in things so small and that was fun but it was only fun because you were in the middle of london you were right in the middle of sort of camden town and out your front door was all that stuff so so to, to my mind, the way we do density here is almost this, the way it's happened in the last 10 years or so, which is essentially developer-driven with the connivance of government, is that is the worst of both worlds because it's spread really often really nasty uh, residential towers everywhere throughout the whole metropolitan area with none of the spin-off benefits. Like if you live in a 35-storey block in Blacktown, you don't have any of the benefits of being able to walk, you know, to the movies or doing, you still have to drive everywhere. And yet you live in this dog box, which is half the time, you know, south facing with a kitchen that where you, and all this, you know, that with, with no proper windows, bedrooms that just open off the living space. I mean, it's, it's actually disgraceful what we've allowed to be built. And even the ones that won't fall down in five minutes because they're badly built are many of them I think uninhabitable and when you and and COVID makes that really obvious because you look at these places and you think god almighty for some poor person that's home you know that that single window up there that's it that's home and that's where you live for six months you can't go anywhere else and I think this is it's a nightmare and it should not have been allowed to happen because it will I think it will give density a bad name and people who've always feared and hated density will fear and hate it even more because it is so ugly and so unpleasant to live on. And so um, such a deprivation 
of what should be rights in a place like this, which is beautiful, fresh, clean air and beautiful sunshine. Everybody should have that stuff. And we're building places where very few have actual access to those things. And I think that's really wrong. And I, it's, but it's also a misnomer because, you know, you can get densities as high. If, if, if what you're talking about is people per hectare, then you can get densities as high building in the way that Paris and London built. You can build Chelsea. You know, you don't have to build Singapore. It doesn't have to be like that. I was having this argument with someone on Twitter this morning. I was saying, oh, well, you're poster sprawl and you don't like towers. What do you like? And I'm going, well, you know, those are not the only options. You can, there is a, there is a whole spectrum in between. And, you know, and look at Amsterdam or look at London or look at Barcelona. There, there are lots and lots of cities. Um, San Francisco is another one that's for years and years done it better and created a kind of urbanism that is really fun to be in. And I think that's important mm. because if it's not fun, we'll all hate it. And what's the point of that? You know, yeah. that's just that's just silly. So there, and that's a design question. And I just yearn for architects and planners to come out en masse and say, we can do better than this. Look at these images this is how we should be doing it. Instead of us going, oh, well, where's my next job coming from? Let me just be nice to all the developers because they're going to employ me. You know, I just, I, I want the professions to behave nobly about this. And they, at the moment, they're not really. Yeah. And look, I guess, you know, so you mentioned way back at the start of our conversation too that the parts of inner city that are really the focus of the book and that have that kind of density that you're talking about, you know, valuing in some ways, are places that now most of us can't afford to live in. <laughs> yes. um, you know, so yeah. so most of us in the city are, are living in its you know in its suburbs. Mm. And there's there's passages in the book too where just as you sort of you know disentangle different kinds of diversity, you also make the point that suburbia itself has also you know sort of changed, and that maybe the kinds of suburbia that were produced in this city in parts of the 20th century were quite communally minded in terms of the way that things were arranged, the centrality of institutions like the local public school, mm. and that even suburbia as we do it now has been kind of privatised and neoliberalised, if mm. you want to put it that way. And so I guess I did want to sort of ask whether, you know, I guess whether the idea of there being a kind of good suburbia is a contradiction in terms in, in any ways for you or whether, you know, you could sort of, yeah, draw out whether there's, I guess... Yeah, the the sort of soul that maybe exists in those places, or at least in some of them, and if there are kind of principles of a better suburbia that in your thinking about Sydney have come to Look, you as well. I suppose I think I, I do have difficulty with suburbia in principle. I know in Sydney we call everything a suburb. You know, Glebe and Surrey Hills and Paddington are all called suburbs, and I think that's a misuse of the term. So what I mean by suburbia is sort of you know the well, I grew up in quarter-acre suburbia, but even eighth of an acre, uh, and smaller. Many of the lots are now smaller. I think, for me, I'm I'm sorry that we still go on building car-dependent living patterns. You know, I think that's for me that's really the key. I walk everywhere. I like to walk everywhere. I I and I can't anymore because I also live in suburbia now, but I. Still, but I did try and pick to the place that I am where I can. I've got there are three what I would call villages within walking sort of half hour walking distance for me at the moment, and I like that. I would like 
you know, a few more bars, not that we can go to bars, um, and cinemas and, you know, things like that around, which I think makes it richer and, and more interesting walking. But I, so I think probably, uh, and not only for climate change reasons, but also for reasons of connectivity and just the sort of the realness of being a pedestrian in the place. It's important that we build places, and I suppose I would be inclined to call them villages or something rather than suburbs, which suggests that there's a fairly dense core with kind of uh, shops but also residences and where people live around but then other people live maybe less densely but still within sort of easy walking distance. And I think it's walking distance that's really important. And if you do design habitat around not just walking distance but walking pleasure like encouragement to walk then you you start to understand that all sorts of different street patterns and things apply like narrower streets are nice because they're much nicer to walk through and and streets with trees are lovely because they're much more interesting to walk around and streets with shops are good and streets with um that connect to shops and cul-de-sacs are terrible because you have to walk all the way down there walk all the way back because you can't get through so so actually your understanding of how that patterning should work shifts and if you were a designer, you would also be impelled, therefore, to start designing pokeability, what I've called pokeability, into street patterns. And that makes, I think that makes a big difference. And the sort of, uh, in the uh, poor old Canberra, in the book, Canberra comes in for a bit of a whipping here and there because this is sort of a good example of how not to do every, just about everything, but including that. If you try, anyone who's ever tried to live in Canberra will know that it's almost impossible to walk around because the blocks are enormous there's nothing, there's almost nothing within walking distance. Everything is designed for driving distance and driving speed. And it's easy to drive, but it's not easy or pleasurable to walk. And the walks are really boring. The footpaths are wide, although quite often they don't exist at all. And quite often there's just grass, you know, which is fine sometimes and not fine other times. But there, it's not it's not enjoyable to walk around because there's, there's, no, there's nothing at the right scale. So I think, yes, there can be good suburbia, but it needs to be rethought from a pedestrian point of view, probably. Yeah. And look, I think that's it. Like, and if I think of some of my favourite parts of Sydney now, I'd be, I'm going to have to have a think about what you've just said and think I can already see the connections in what you've just said and the bits that I must say I like. So yeah. it's, if, if I'm thinking about, you know, Beamish Street in Campsie or Holden Street in Lakemba or John Street in Cabramatta or Burwood Road, they yeah. do have that sort of thing, I guess, of that sort of, or whether village is the right word, but I, I see, yeah, that point of there being that kind of quite dense and very... And it's yeah, flavour. I mean, you get a flavour from all of those places and they have different flavours. So you can actually yeah. tell from the feel, which is partly the fabric and partly the people, where you are and you can navigate. And in those good places, you can navigate by feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this yeah. feels like Burwood and, and so yeah. it is. <laughs> and certainly, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose one of my, you know, <laughs> worries that connects with the book is that, yeah, that sense that, that some of those places right now I think are, you know, at risk of their own kinds of uh, redevelopment and overdevelopment that might lose some yeah. of those characteristics too. But it's probably rather than, you know, getting <laughs> down the rabbit hole even further on that, I guess probably just to, to wrap things up by asking about the forces that might assemble to oppose some of these, you know, changes that are going on in our city that are, that are creating the problems. 
And the book ends with a kind of citizen manifesto. And rather than asking you to kind of, you know, repeat that or, or for us to read it, I guess is to ask you whether you do see kind of shoots of, you know, organized citizens having positive impacts across the city that are giving you any hope right now, or even the way that citizens maybe in other cities are organizing themselves to fight what are, I think, some of the same forces around, you know, neoliberalization and other things. Yeah, just interested to ask you right now at this difficult time whether uh, where the hope might be. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, I, yes, absolutely there's hope. I mean, hope is different from optimism <laughs> in a critical way um, because optimism expects, whereas hope hopes but I look I do think that there are good things happening it's easier to see good things in Melbourne I think it always has been Melbourne's always been better at things urban than Sydney for reasons that I don't really know but somebody blamed it recently on the Sydney push and that sort of anarchism of that and maybe that's right but whatever the reason is Sydney is is still more sort of stridently individualistic and I think so so there's fewer of those things happening in Melbourne for example there's Nightingale and all of the spin-offs from the Nightingale uh, housing development which, which have been lovely to watch and I've visited a few of them and I have thought this is enchanting and why isn't there more of this and that one was of course um, developer-led and I think there are eight or nine or more buildings now and then there are other companies also emulating the same model with greater and lesser success but i don't i have heard of various sort of semi-cooperative type ventures in sydney i've made one or two vague attempts to do similar things myself and not got them up off the ground i'm sure that there are things happening i have heard of for example a collection of older people trying to do some housing together in balmain i don't know how successful most of that's been it's terribly hard of course when property prices property values, land values are just so high, which I think is ludicrous. And most of that is easily fixable through government policy, but only through government policy. For example, negative gearing, which is an obvious thing that should be thrown out straight away. Most of the the hopefulness would de- does depend on, I think, people being motivated and being able to take more control for themselves, to demand more control, whether that happens through you know, making some of these issues actual voting issues so that politicians start to care about them or whether it's through setting up alternative sort of self-built or cooperative housing initiatives. So all of those things can be good. But I really wish, and I COVID is, I was just thinking this morning, COVID is so frustrating because we're all just being good little citizens and sitting at home and it makes things like collective action really hard because you can only do it through zoom i mean i i just i almost can't believe that we're just sort of accepting this i know we have to and i know you know all the reasons why blah blah and and i'm the last thing i am is any kind of anti-vaxxer but i just honestly think that our preparedness to relinquish our freedoms to collect these days are frightening and I look at the destruction of Willow Grove and think you know how is it that you can get together to demolish things but you can't get together in the street to protest that demolition is this really are we seriously accepting this you know because why is that okay I just I honestly 
don't get it. And I think it's I think it's really quite dangerous, our acceptance of this. I hope it ends really soon and we can get back and get a bit more militant. But I'm I am a bit disturbed by the degree to which Sydney siders have just hunkered down and thought, oh, well, (laughs) let's just do this. People tell me that everyone's getting really angry, and I think that's true. And I hope that when it erupts, it doesn't just erupt into sort of so-called freedom marches, but actually erupts into things that will take back power to make positive changes to the place. Because it's not about individual freedom, it's about the freedom to do things collectively. That's much more important. And I think that's the thing that we really need to fight for, because it's a real thing which which we relinquish at our peril. Yeah, that's a nice place for us to finish, Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm already going to be in trouble with Dallas for talking <laughs> to you for too long. But um, thanks again so much for making the time. That's an uh, absolute pleasure. It was really fun. Yeah, great. All right. Um, <laughs> so we'll bid our listeners farewell. Thanks okay. very much for joining us. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Elizabeth Farrelly speaking there with Kurt Iverson. Thanks for listening to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast on City Road. My name's Fenella Kernerbone. I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney. If you liked this discussion, don't forget we have another six interviews in the Book Club series. Preston Peachy chats with Julie Jansen about benevolence. Dallas Rogers speaks with Tom Slater about his hotly anticipated new book, Shaking Up the City, and he sits down with Adam Morton to talk about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Dallas also speaks with Shanti Robertson about her new book, Temporality in Mobile Lives, and Vanessa Berry about Mira Sydney. And we wrap up the series in Western Sydney with Catriona McKenzie's Pike, discussing Second City, Essays from Western Sydney. All the details are on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. See you next time.